Welcome to Technovation. I'm Peter High. I'm pleased to be joined today by David Rubenstein. Uh, David's the co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest and most successful private investment firms established in 1987. The firm now manages um, in excess of $370 billion uh, and has 29 offices around the world. He is or has been on the boards of numerous institutions, such as the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, the Council on Foreign Relations, the National Gallery of Art, the Economic Club of Washington, and the University of Chicago. Uh, David's an original signer of the Giving Pledge and intends to give away his vast fortune. He's also a leader in uh, patriotic philanthropy, having made transformative gifts uh, for the restoration or repair of the Washington Monument, Lincoln Memorial, Jefferson Memorial, Monticello, uh, among others. He's also the host of the David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer -peer conversations on Bloomberg TV, which you can also consume in podcast form, and is the author of multiple books like The American Story, How to Lead, Game Changers, and The American Experiment. And his latest book is How to Invest uh, Masters on the Craft, which uh, was published by Simon & Schuster in September of 2022. David, welcome back to Technovation. It's great to speak with you again. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. That's a pleasure. But first, a quick word from our partner, Adyen, and the company's chief operating officer, Cameron Zaki. Adyen is a payment platform company that allows businesses to accept e-commerce, mobile, and point-of-sale payments. And Cameron wanted to provide a short overview of what Adyen has to offer. Cameron, over to you. Thanks, Peter. It's one global platform on which you can do many continents and countries, all the relevant payment methods, which vary significantly across different parts of the world to online and physical world or mobile. And we've continued to expand from there. If you go to a dinner party and people ask you what you do and you say this, they're like, that sounds like common sense. Why is it unique? The reality is that a lot of the players who've been around for decades have grown on mainframe computing, releasing once or twice a year, buying other companies, and then they give you one API. But behind the scenes, it's a bit of a spaghetti mess, unfortunately. What Adyen did and what we do is sort of really do the backend plumbing that is a little less sexy at times, but really makes the difference in being able to say, hey, it was Peter. Do you know that he you know, shops online and on mobile and in your store and you can recognize him and you can connect all the dots and it's not just enabling the payment but it's hey how do you factor that into loyalty and marketing and all kinds of other use cases thanks cameron and now on to the interview well let, let's talk a little bit about the book if you don't mind um when you look at the cover of of the book as i just showed it's called how to invest and it's written by david m rubenstein one might think that this would be a tome dedicated to your wisdom and teachings. Uh, and actually, it's, it's very funny. In the introduction, you dispel the notion uh, that that might be even be possible by saying that you're not really kind of investor per se. Uh, and I wonder if you can kind of describe that for, for folks who would probably be uh, uh, surprised to hear that that's, in fact, your, your, the way in which you think of yourself. Sure. The title is a book uh, title that the publisher thought was a good title. It probably wouldn't have been my selection, but that's the one they thought was be best, I guess. But I didn't want to mislead people. I, you know, obviously, if you read this book, you're not going to become Warren Buffett. You can't read a book on golf and become Tiger Woods. But it's designed to kind of give people a background of what investing is about, why I think it has some social purpose that's useful, and how you can do a better job of investing, recognize you're not going to be Warren Buffett. Uh, in the when the preparatory material, introductory material, I indicate that while I did start Carlisle in 1987, it was my idea to do it. And I recruited all the original other co-founders. 
I never was the investor per se at the firm. I didn't have an MBA. I'm trained as a lawyer. I wasn't a very good lawyer. If I was a good lawyer, I probably would have stayed practicing law. But I started the firm hoping to do something a little different in my career. And I recruited people that had MBAs or had investing experience. And so I took on the role of raising the money, um, recruiting people, figuring out the strategy for the firm, and probably becoming the face of the firm because I was more willing to do speeches, interviews, TV presentations, and so forth. I did sit in several thousand investment committees. I learned a little bit about investing from that, but I wouldn't say that I was the investor qua investor at Carlisle. Yeah, very interesting. Um, you dedicate the book to your co-founders of Carlisle, but also to Warren Buffett, who you've already mentioned. Uh, he's not featured in the book, but you clearly admire him greatly. You you note that he's the master of the investor craft. And I wonder if you could maybe take a quick moment and describe your, your admiration for Buffett. Sure. I do know Warren reasonably well. I wouldn't say I'm his closest friend, but I've interviewed him several times. And um, he was a uh, originator of the Giving Pledge. And I, as you noted, I was an original signer of it. And so I went go to see him at the at Giving Pledge meetings. Warren, as somebody I interviewed for another book, and I didn't want to repeat an interview that I'd already done more or less, even though it might be updated a bit. Warren has also largely stopped giving interviews. Uh, I think when he hit the age of 91 or 92, he more or less slowed down the interview. Uh, but he's done a few, but I, I didn't really ask him for one for this book. But I I admire him because what he did is over his career, he's invested for 60 years, more or less, and has averaged 20% a year for 60 years. So, you know, some people can do 20% a year, 30% a year, 40% a year for one or two years in a row, but doing 20% over 60 years on average uh, is pretty impressive. Yeah, very, very interesting. You, one of the fascinating aspects of the book, David, is your diagnosis of some of the common denominators among the people who you profile. One of them is uh, blue collar upbringings, uh, something you share as, as neither of your parents, as you, you note, graduated from high school. Um, describe why you think that's a, a key element in the success for a lot of the, the, the people who you profiled. Well, if you look at the uh, people who win Nobel Prizes, generally, they are not people who have come from extremely wealthy families. Maybe that's because the, the drive to win a Nobel Prize probably requires a real um, dedication to work and effort. You don't have to, uh, you, you need to kind of do something that really um, pushes you. If your father or mother is a billionaire or multi-billionaire, you have to wonder whether you're going to grow up with that kind of drive. Now, of course, there are some people from very wealthy families who have accomplished a great deal in their life, of course. But as a general rule of thumb, the people I interviewed, it turns out that they came from blue collar families or lower middle class families. And that might suggest one of the reasons why they have the drive that led them to be a great investor. They didn't have money to fall back on. They had to make it on their own. And in my own case, for example, I think that one of the reasons I've been reasonably successful is I always knew that I had to make it on my own. I didn't have a wealthy parent who could give me money and just say, don't worry if you don't succeed, it doesn't, doesn't make a difference. Yeah. Another, another common denominator you talk about is uh, that many of them had failures or significant setbacks along the way, and uh, that that resilience from that is an important ingredient as well. Can you explain that? Yes. I mean, anybody that's an investor will have lost money if they're really a true investor. Everybody, Warren Buffett, everybody's made bad investment decisions. And Warren Buffett's talked about his. Uh, I think when you make bad investment decisions, you learn from them and you pick yourself up and get back into the game. If you basically say, I made a bad investment decision or two, I'm going to just retire from investing, you're not going to be a great investor. So you learn from what your mistakes are and try to improve in the future. Carlisle's had many mistakes over the years. I think we learned from them. 
Um, I've made some personal investment mistakes. I think I've learned from it. And I think that's one of the reasons why great investors have a certain degree of humility. Now, there's always certain arrogance that you can find in some investors, but the majority of people in this book are people that have a certain amount of humility because they failed and they recognize that they got back on their feet and they learn from their mistakes, And but they know they can make them again. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned in the book uh, some of those investment misses you've had. Actually, interestingly enough, uh, a couple of them coming through uh, son-in-law. Uh, your son-in-law was a high school and college friend of, or at least acquaintance of Mark Zuckerberg, and you had an early opportunity to get involved with Facebook and turn that down. A uh, son-in-law also worked for Moderna before that took off, and uh, also you didn't see that as uh, being a successful company to uh, one worthy of an investment. Talk a, a bit about uh, your misreading of those ideas, if you don't mind. Well, Mark Zuckerberg uh, was a smart person. Uh, my uh, to-be son-in-law, now my son-in-law, told me that Mark had many different ideas at Harvard of starting companies, and he started many companies that nobody ever heard of. They didn't get anywhere. This particular one was more or less a dating service. It was designed to show you the pictures of other people at Harvard. And then maybe he thought he could expand it to a couple other universities. It was never in the original concept, as far as I understand, designed to be for people who are not students at a particular college. It, when it expanded to adults who are not college kids, uh, that was a novel thing at the time. But uh, I didn't think it would work because dating services have been around for a while. College computerized dating services had started in the 1970s. And I just didn't think there's anything novel about it, honestly. Uh, Moderna's case, my son-in-law, who later got a Harvard degree uh, in uh, in business at, M at Harvard Business School and a medical school degree at Harvard Medical School. He went to work at Moderna for about four years. And as I read about the company and heard him talk about it, they had never actually had a, a uh, product approved by the FDA. So for 10 years, 10 years, they never had a single product that actually had any uh, real commercial uh, viability. Uh, clearly, the people that stayed with it, the, the firm uh, flagship ventures in Boston stayed with it for 10 years. And ultimately, the firm obviously came up with a COVID-19 vaccine that many of us have used. So I wish I had invested in that company at a dollar a share, which I could have done when it was a private company. <laughs> you also noted that Carlisle bought a company called Baker & Taylor, the second biggest book distributor in the U.S. at the time. You bought it from uh, W.R. Grace. And you had the opportunity to offer the bibliography associated with the company to a tech startup uh, for a very significant stake in that company. You elected to rent it to them instead. I wonder if you can pick up the story from there. Sure. A young man uh, came to uh, Baker and Taylor and said he wanted to rent a bibliography of books in print, which we had. It didn't cost us anything. We already had it. But he said he didn't have a lot of cash. He would give us 20 or 30 percent of the company he was starting. And our clever salesperson said, no, we don't take startup stock. Uh, so we negotiated $100,000 a year for five years. Uh, when I later heard about this about two years later, I didn't really know about it at the beginning. I said, maybe we should have gotten some stock. I think that company might get somewhere. I went out to see Jeff Bezos and explained to him why we needed the 20 or 30% of the company. He said, David, that was two years ago. I don't need you so much, but uh, I'll give you 1% of the company, which he did. I told him I, at the time, I said, you know, Jeff, I don't know if you're really going to be able to beat Barnes and Noble. I mean, they're so dominant. What do you really have they don't have? And he kept saying, well, we understand computer software better and something. I just rolled my eyes and thought I'd never hear from him again. But actually, uh, he turned out to be pretty good. <laughs> Indeed. Um, you also note that since uh, its creation, the story of the U.S. is one of investment and entrepreneurship. Um, you, you, this is something you, you, you've gotten involved in, not only as an entrepreneur yourself, but somebody who's gotten immersed in the history of the country with some of the uh, historically philanthropic giving that you have done and is a, a, 
a citizen of Washington, D.C., I certainly am very grateful for, for all of the investments you make across our city. Um, I, I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about like that, that reflection that, you know, in, in essence, in some ways, it's part of the DNA of, of our country to be investment minded. Um, there's a person who used to work for me, Dan Sinor, who's now at another investment firm, Elliott, and he wrote a book about Israel called Startup Nation. But that's essentially what the United States was. We were a startup nation 250 years ago. And when you're a startup nation, you need to have certain entrepreneurial instincts. And so our country, probably more than Europe, really is a country that really uh, encouraged entrepreneurs to start companies. Many of them obviously became famous companies. These entrepreneurs became very wealthy. If you think about it now, the technology that you use to get through the day, let's say it's Google, Apple, Amazon, uh, Netflix, uh, Facebook, whatever those might be, they've come to dominate the way we, we uh, live more or less, rightly or wrongly or fairly or not. Yet uh, these are all technologies that are basically American products. These are American entrepreneurs who started these. Uh, Europe hasn't really produced those kind of technologies that dominate the world. Why is it? Well, the technology entrepreneurs in Europe really haven't come to the surface in quite the way the American ones uh, have. And I think it's because in part, we encourage entrepreneurship much more in this country than probably Europe does. Uh, obviously, Europe has done many other wonderful things and has great entrepreneurs in certain areas, but not in technology. And as a result, uh, we're really dependent on, on these American technology companies. One of the criticisms of TikTok is that it's a Chinese technology company. And many people in the United States are worried that it will help the Chinese government in ways that might not be helpful to our country. So we're not used to having technologies dominate our country the way TikTok seems to be in some circles when they're not American. Uh, and America really has grown up, you know, uh, I'd, I'd say idolizing entrepreneurs like Thomas Edison or, uh, or uh, Henry Ford or, or people like the ones I just mentioned, Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. And in this country, if you're an entrepreneur, and you build a successful company, generally you're, you're kind of uh, highly regarded. Now, now there's some backlash now against multi-billionaires and the tech billionaires and all that. But generally, these people are, are pretty well regarded in the United States, certainly compared to what you see in Europe. Mm. Talk about the balance, if you don't mind, between um, work ethic and smarts. One of the, the really interesting anecdotes that you share in the book is an interview with Stan Druckenmiller, the former chairman and president of Duquesne Capital, who said that you only need about a, an IQ of about 120 to be a great investor, which actually uh, made me think of Warren Buffett says something similar to that as well, that, you know, with a, a IQ of 120, you, you, you can do very well. And he's, he goes so far as to say, uh, if you go too high, it actually can be a hindrance. Uh, and, and I wonder what, what, if you had to choose between extra points of IQ or extra work ethic, um, which would you choose in a, in, in a person to work with? Always work ethic. Um, I interviewed thousands of people over the years. I've hired a few, quote, geniuses, high Mensa scores and people like that, and they're unmanageable. Their ego gets to be too big or they just think they're so smart, they can't work with other people. In private equity, it's more or less a team sport. There's no one person that can do a deal by him or herself as a general rule of thumb. And if you can't get along with other people, and sometimes brilliant people just don't get along with others so well, it's a problem. I would much more greatly value and I do more greatly value uh, hard work. If you get a genius, but he or she doesn't want to work hard, that's not very good. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. There are a couple of people in the book who you profile who are associated with environmental, social, and governance, uh, so-called ESG investments. Larry Fink, who, large, who manages uh, BlackRock, the largest asset, asset manager in the world. David Blood, the co-founder and senior partner of Generation Investment Management. Um, talk a bit about your own thought process about ESG investing, which 
has had its, you know, sort of ups and downs in terms of being in favor or, or less so, or, you know, more or less controversial as well. What's your own thought process about having ESG as, um, as a vein through investments that you contemplate? Well, for those who are listening or watching, um, I would say that uh, the conventional way that you valued investments was to get the highest rate of return and the multiple of invested capital, the highest it could be without breaking any laws. So if you did hurt the environment, it wasn't a big deal. If you ship jobs offshore, not a big deal. Uh, but that is something that has changed. It used to be under Milton Friedman's guidance, the view that took hold in the United States was that you, as a CEO, have an obligation to worry only about your shareholders. The view has changed, and now you work at worry about all your stakeholders, your employees, your community, your suppliers, and so forth, customers. Now, ESG has come along and said, well, if you, if you really want to be a good corporate citizen, you should worry about environment, uh, social issues like uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and governance and how your company is governed. Now, the conventional view at when this came along, this movement came along, um, at first it was called impact investing, but now kind of known as ESG. It was thought that if by definition you're not investing in certain things, you have a smaller um, circle of things in which you can invest. By definition, you'll have a a lower rate of return because you're not investing in everything you theoretically could invest in. The view has now taken hold in some circles that if you um, want to do a good job of investing, invest in companies that have good ESG because uh, employees who are really smart these days want to work at good ESG companies. Customers want to buy from companies that have good ESG practices. Uh, suppliers want to work with companies that have good ESG practices. So in the end, you're going to get more and more business from people and better and better employees and customers if you're good at ESG. Now, there's been a backlash recently since the Ukraine war because of the, of the, the view that uh, Europe is caught short without uh, conventional uh, energy, that by worrying too much about ESG and environmental things, we've left, uh, let's say, Western Europe naked to exposure from uh, uh, oil and gas constraints coming out of Russia. That That is probably uh, a, a factor in reducing the obsession that some people have with ESG. ESG's had this backlash, as you suggest, but right now, I think ESG is maybe, you know, taking a little bit of a hit, but it's going to come along and be much stronger in the future, in my view. Very interesting. We, we talked about, um, David, that no investor, uh, especially great investors, uh, are, go through their career without uh, consequential mistakes here and there. Uh, and you talked earlier about the, the necessity for resilience. One of the factors you also talk about, and, and you use Sam Zell, the legendary real estate investor, as an example of this, who made a, a tremendous amount of, of money and was enormously successful in real estate, and then put a portion of his invest, investments uh, of his wealth into the Chicago Tribune, which subsequently went bankrupt. But you talk about an ability among a lot of these super investors to put failures quickly behind them. And talk about that as a factor that you that you have diagnosed among many of the people you profiled. That's maybe why I'm not a great investor. I'm still talking about the Mark Zuckerberg and the <laughs> and the Jeff Bezos things 20 and 30 years later. I just can't get this out of my head. But some of my partners who are really good investors, they don't even think about a mistake they made. They go on to the next thing. And that's the same case as the one we were just talking about. Um, Sam Zell um, sold uh, his real estate empire, uh, or a large part of it, at the top of the market, the absolute top of the market. And he took some of the proceeds and put it in the Chicago Tribune. But he didn't really know much about the Tribune and the economics weren't really favorable for newspapers. And basically, he lost all his money. The company went bankrupt. But when I talked to him about it, he basically said, OK, I made a mistake. I'm on to the next thing. He didn't seem to bat an eyelash thinking about it. Obviously, he wasn't happy for a failure, but he, it, he went on to the next thing. And 
that's just the way he he is. And when he great investors just go on the next next project and they recognize they're going to make some mistakes uh, in the future. And that's just how they live. Yeah. You also talk about uh, John Paulson's major investment shorting the housing bubble uh, just prior to its uh, the, the, the bubble bursting as an example of how many of the greatest investors think against the grain, these uh, identifying where they can at least these asymmetric trade opportunities. Uh, talk a bit about you know what you diagnose there as well. The these these the, the the vision that some people have to see what others can't. Well, if you go along with the the easiest thing to do is to take what's called the path of least resistance, which is to go along with what conventional wisdom says you should do, and that's the easiest way to live your life. Go along with what everybody else is doing. Don't try to stand out. Don't try to do something different because people might make fun of you. People might criticize you. But if you're really strong-willed and you're really good as an investor. You will go against the conventional grain. You will go against conventional wisdom. You'll take the path of hardest resistance. And as a result, you're more likely than not probably going to do pretty well. Because if you just do what everybody else is doing, you're just going to get the market averages. You're just not going to be uh, standing out. So the people that have become great investors, the ones in my book, are taking risks that people told them were, were stupid to take, and they did it. A good example is, uh, I'll take Jim Simons. He more or less invented quantitative investing. Uh, people told him, you can't use mathem mathematics to figure out how to make an investment. You have to use your human brain. Now, obviously, the human brain uh, diagrams the computers, but in the end, the computer algorithms really make decisions about investing, and that really transformed the investment world. And at the time, people thought he was crazy. Mm -hmm. The founder of Renaissance Capital, yeah, and, and uh, certainly uh, somebody who qualifies as a genius, one of the, the greatest mathematicians. Um, very interesting examples. I also found it really um, interesting your diagnosis of you know the people you profile uh, have earned fortunes uh, that generations of their family probably couldn't spend, and and yet they so many of them end up working all of their lives or at least as long as they possibly can, as opposed to reaching a point where they say you know look I, I've had enough, it's time to relax or work on my golf game or something like that. You're an example of that. You're, you right, are uh, right. working very hard at a point where you don't necessarily need to. Um, what, what drives you and, and by extension, what have you seen as, as the driving factors for so many of these people you profile? Well, if I was any good at golf, maybe I would look at it differently. I was <laughs> terrible at that and terrible at almost everything else I tried. But I would say to be very serious, when you get to the point where you're one of the best in the world at what you do and you're an investor um, or, or whatever you might be very good at, it's pleasure. It's not work. So the greatest investors in the world, they have so much pleasure in what they're doing. They're matching wits at the age of 75 or 80 with other people who might be younger. They're still making money, which is a measure of success. Uh, they are giving away the bulk of this money, of course. But in the end, it's just a, a, a question of pleasure versus work. And for people like me and for people like them, uh, what I'm doing is not work. It's pleasure. I love what I'm doing, just as they love what they're doing. And I'm sure you love what you're doing. So when you reach my age, you're not going to just sit back and play golf. You're probably going to keep doing this, right? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. It's a great model to pursue. Um, I, I wanted to ask you also, you had a great section on uh, the venture capital world. You profile Mark Andreessen and uh, Michael Moritz uh, of Andreessen Horowitz and Sequoia Capital, respectively. And you talk about the differences in philo philosophical, uh, the, the philosophical nature of, of investments within those organizations that Andreessen Horowitz um, you know, an individual investor can uh, can invest on their own if there are others within the investment team who don't wish to to go in on an investment. Whereas Sequoia, like so many firms, requires in essence unanimity of decisions. 
And you talk uh, examples beyond VC as well of the adva relative advantages of a Buffett, for instance, who basically makes the investment decisions, many of them anyway, historically by himself uh, versus the wisdom, uh, but, but also potentially the bureaucracy of a committee. Talk a bit about the advantages of each, if you would. Well, the story is that Sequoia, they want to have everybody agree on, on investment, so it's unanimity. Um, but of course, you recognize if you're on investment committees, it's generally easy to go along, easier to go along with the conventional wisdom where the person is proponent of pushing a particular investment. So yes, it's, it's people tend to go along with somebody driving something, but they do want unanimity. And when you have unanimity, you tend to get, you often get the least common denominator because to please everybody, you just generally have to make some, uh, some compromises. In the system they use at Andreessen Horowitz, any one partner can say, I want a certain amount of the fund to be dedicated just to my deals and each have a certain amount of money they can do that with. And then they just go on their own. And some of those deals turn out to be wonderful. And some of them turn out to be not so wonderful. I've learned over the years that when people have different systems of investing, they tell you about the great ones. They don't usually tell you about the ones that don't work out. But I can't say that the Andreessen Horowitz model is better or worse than the Sequoia one. Sequoia has been spectacularly successful, unbelievably so. But you know, Andreessen Horowitz, while much younger, has done quite well also. Um, Clearly, uh, they have different models, but they both work. Yeah. Investing in crypto isn't for the faint of heart, certainly, David. And you profile uh, Mike Novogratz, who's the CEO of Galaxy Investment Partners, uh, which focuses a lot on cryptocurrency. I, I must say, in reviewing that, uh, that section of the book recently, it struck me uh, as rather fortunate that you didn't profile Sam Bankman-Fried for that section, although you have interviewed him uh, in the relatively yeah. recent past. Um, what's your current feeling about crypto and the extent to which uh, you're seeing some of the, these firms blow up uh, uh, and the, the remarkable kind of ups and downs in that space? Um, how do you think about it? I know you're, you're, you, you've invested at least in some of the, the companies right. that surround it as well. My view on it is that it won't go away, even though it has lots of critics and I can understand why it has a lot of critics. critics. But generally, I would think that um, I, the analogy I often use is let's suppose you want to go to Las Vegas and you want to gamble and you know you're going to lose money. You're just going to lose money if you stay there long enough. But you enjoy the pleasure of gambling, whatever reason. I'm not a gambler, so it doesn't appeal to me. But if you do that and you allocate X dollars to it and you lose it, you're okay, you get pleasure out of it. If following crypto stocks gives you uh, pleasure, uh, allocate the same amount of money to it. And if you lose, you'll get the pleasure of having watched the oscillations of the crypto and talk about it with your friends and appear to be knowledgeable about it. Um, so I don't regard it as the worst thing in the world, assuming you, you don't put in more than you can afford to lose. But as a serious investment matter, I think crypto has its real challenges because there's nothing really underlying it. And it's a question of like tulip bulbs in the Netherlands. At some point, somebody's going to say, hey, there's no, uh, uh, there's no value here. But sometimes you might be able to get out before people say that. So it's very, very risky. I do think that the blockchain technology on which much of crypto is dependent is a very valuable technology, and it will lead to other things that can be valuable. And I think some of the investments in, crypt, in um, blockchain technologies, not crypto necessarily related, uh, probably will have some real benefit. Uh, in my own case, I think that crypto is not going away, in part because young people seem to be really enamored with it. And when you look at the great innovations that have occurred in our country in recent years, technology-related ones, they all started by young people. Uh, computers, smartphones, and so forth. It's young people that really make the, the changes in, in the way we live and so forth. And I think it's a mistake to ignore what people who are in their 20s and 30s are doing all over the world. So maybe crypto has its flaws, and we know what some of them are now, 
And uh, clearly, when you have fraud, uh, that's not something that you can really uh, support in any way. Um, I didn't. I did interview Sam Bankman-Fried. Obviously, I was fooled like others. I didn't think he was committing fraud when he talked about what he was doing. But if you eliminate fraud, I would say that uh, you know, watch what young people are doing because they tend to have trends that tend to have ones which pick up and older people tend to follow them at some point. Crypto will be perfected at some point. Probably it'll be made more valuable in some ways down the road. Um, the companies I've invested in for my family office tend to support the crypto industry a bit, but they're not really taking bets on particular cryptocurrencies. You talked a little bit about just then, and you certainly write about it in a variety of different places about um, the advantages of youth, uh, of being able to call into question the shibboleths of the past, for example, David. And I wonder, how do you stay current? And um, how are you influenced perhaps by younger people in your firm uh, to call into question uh, perhaps some of the inherited wisdom that comes with the amount of experience that you have? Well, I have three children. They all have MBAs. They all have their own private equity funds in different areas. And so I talk to them from time to time about what they're doing. And you learn a lot from your own children. Um, but also at Carlisle and my family office declaration, we have a lot of very young people. And by talking to them, you get a sense of what's going on in the world uh, a little bit more than we talk to people my age who really don't know much what's about going on in the world uh, in the new in new areas, new technologies. Um, I don't know if, if you have the same experience as I do, but sometimes younger people in their 20s or 30s will talk about new websites or new technologies I never even heard of. And yet it turns out that they're very popular. And if you follow uh, what young people are doing, in the end, you'll probably find some pretty good companies. Yeah. I found it really interesting also, David, that among the things you find as common traits across these very successful titans of finance are humility, learning to share credit, uh, teamwork, uh, you know, the stereotype one has of, of uh, mega billionaires um, of finance would certainly run contrary to some of that. Obviously, you know, know, know these people intimately, you are one of these people. Um, talk a bit about some of those kinds of factors that might be surprising to some as they think about a stereotype of a of a titan of finance? Well, there's no doubt that if you have uh, done a lot of investing, you've made mistakes, and that tends to produce um, some humility, as I mentioned. But also, I have found that most of the people who are really successful in life, not just in investing, have a certain humility to them, because they recognize there was a lot of luck along the way, and they were very fortunate, they had a good lucky break here or there. Now, there are always going to be people who are arrogant in politics, in business, in investing. And those aren't the kind of people I tend to profile or I tend to want to associate myself with. And I tell people, look, if you um, if you are arrogant, well, do a better job of hiding it, because I think people admire humility much better, even if it's false humility. And for example, who do you admire the most, a president of the United States who brags about how he's the greatest person of all time or a person who is, let's say, like Abraham Lincoln? who would say, well, you know, you can't imagine Abraham Lincoln running around saying, I won the Civil War by myself. Aren't I a genius? It's just not his personality. And so I tend to think that people admire people that have more humility than arrogance. Now, obviously, some people are arrogant and very successful. Napoleon was a pretty successful, I gather. And, you know, I don't think anybody who called themselves Alexander the Great was probably very modest. But but I suspect that, uh, you know, on the, on the whole, the thing that I try to tell students and young professionals is really try to be humble and, and, and to have some humility. And if you're not really humble and, and, and not really have some humility, fake it. You also talk, David, about a common denominator among successful people you know is reading. And yes. talk about that, if you would. Well, reading is, is an essential way of communicating and learning about uh, things around the world. That's a very important for me. 
Um, I didn't have a family that could afford to buy books. So I went to the library. I read as many as I could. I still am obsessive compulsive about trying to read as many books as I can. I try to read roughly 100 books a year um, and, and really learn things because you can learn much more about uh, the world in reading books because you focus your brain much more than reading an, an article or a, 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 uh, or a tweet or something like that. But I am amazed at how many people stop reading once they graduate from high school or college. And you look at surveys that say that sometimes uh, you'll see that 30% or more of adults have never read a book in the last five years. These are people, college graduates, have not read a book uh, in the last five years or been to a bookstore in the last five years. So I, I am worried about the fact that uh, reading is going down a bit. And also we have about 30 some percent of our population, adult population is functionally illiterate, which means they can't read at all uh, past the sixth grade level. And that's a, that's a real challenge. So I do think literacy is very important, a key to, uh, to civilization. So I do try to encourage people to read. And I remind people when I give a commencement speech that commencement is the word it really means beginning. It doesn't mean the end. So when you're, you're, you're getting your degree, it's not the end of your education. It's the beginning of it, I hope. In reading 100, 100 books per year, how do you curate that, David? And, and I know from past conversations, you, um, you advise to, to read far afield. Uh, you, you, I gather you don't read just finance tomes, but rather um, uh, some of the greatest ideas one can have is dot connecting in unusual ways. And so I wonder, how, how do you curate your own uh, reading list? Well, I, I, I'm not perfect in this in the sense that I, I am not a fiction reader, by and large. Um, I, I tend to read nonfiction. I tend to read books in areas I know something about history, uh, business, philanthropy, politics. So I can get through the books reasonably quickly because I have a background in the area. If I was reading science textbooks or you know great works of fiction like War and Peace, I probably wouldn't get through them uh, so readily. Um, so I, I, I also have a trick, which is I'm interviewing a lot of authors. And I think it's a courtesy. It's a good idea to read the book. You obviously have read my book. And so uh, I think it's a courtesy when you're interviewing an author to read the book. So I spent a lot of my time reading books uh, for people I'm about to interview. And I try to seem like I know what, what's in the book. I hope I do. Um, so that's one way to force feed yourself to read the books. But in the end, reading is pleasurable. And I, nothing is more pleasurable to me than getting a great book and trying to read it. And uh, sometimes you pick up a book that's so wonderful, you can't put it down. Now, sometimes you pick up books and you put them down, you won't want to pick them up again because they're so bad. But I try to read books that you really don't want to put down. Yeah, fantastic. And um, I wonder if there's any recent books you've read that you would particularly recommend, David? Well, there's a lot of them I'd recommend. I'm going to interview, right after this, I'm going to interview a person who's written a book, Walter Mead, about uh, the history of Israel and, um, and, and anti-Semitism, a very, very good book. I'm about to uh, gonna interview in a couple of days a very good uh, book on, on uh, Admiral Nimitz, who, who um, was the leader of the Navy in World War II. Uh, I, but in terms of books, I would highly recommend that I read recently uh, the book by Peter Baker and uh, on, on Jim Baker, who used to be okay. in my firm, is an excellent book. Uh, the Man Who Ran Washington, an excellent, excellent book. Um, I'd say, uh, you know, if I had to pick any one book that I had to be on a desert island with, I would probably pick the Bible, because if you read the Bible, it's got almost everything you want to know about human history and human development and, and things. But, um, you know, I hope not to be on a desert island, but if you had to pick one, I probably would pick uh, that book. It's an excellent book. That's that's a, that's a, a good recommendation, good set of recommendations. Thank you for those, David. I, I wonder, you know, how how do you uh, you're involved in so many things? Your involvement, of course, with Carl Carlisle. Uh, I mentioned your TV program, uh, book writing, your philanthropy. How do you divide your time among the various things that you're pursuing these days? 
Well, I've complicated uh, schedule for sure. And I've got a team of people that kind of juggles the schedule to make sure I can try to honor my commitments. I, I have taken on a fair amount in the philanthropic area and the business area, but I love what I'm doing. I'm not doing anything I don't want to do. I'm now 73 years old. And at that age, I don't need to do anything. I could just sit on the beach, I suppose, but I love what I'm doing. So it's not really uh, work for me. Um, I just, you know, have an enthusiasm for the nonprofits I'm involved with, try to make a difference there. And and, and my business uh, interests are, are pretty uh, wide reaching. So I, it's not a problem for me to kind of do many different things in the business world. And I try to do as many uh, media things as I can. So I, I enjoy it. But um, I recognize that at 73, I'm not going to live forever. And I also I do what I call sprinting to the finish line. I'm trying to get things done because I read the obituary pages every day and say, how come this person 65 died and I'm 73, I'm still alive? Or how come somebody who's a classmate of mine or a friend of mine at my age died? And so you're not old enough to get to that point yet. But I, I do think you, you get a certain sense of mortality when you get older and you want to just get things done. And that's what I'm trying to do. Talk a bit about your um, how you got involved in patriotic philanthropy, David, if you would. On the one hand, one hand you live in Washington. Uh, we live not far from each other. Uh, and so perhaps it's in the milieu to some extent that you're surrounded by the treasures of our country, uh, historical treasures of our country. But I mean, there's there are a lot of people who go to museums and enjoy right. uh, enjoy those those treasures without getting as involved as you've chosen to. Uh, talk a bit about your involvement there. Well, I um worked in the White House when I was very young. And obviously, you work in the White House, you do have a sense of history. And I'd worked in Capitol Hill before, and you also get a sense of history there. I've lived in Washington area for 40 years. So you obviously see these monuments and memorials all the time. But all of it came about by happenstance. I happened to go to a viewing of the Magna Carta. I was told it was likely to be bought by somebody who, would leave the country, who doesn't live in this country. I just decided on a you know, spur of the moment, I'm going to go buy it and keep it in this country. And once I bought the Magna Carta, I had other historic documents presented to me, and I started buying these historic documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Emancipation Proclamation, putting them all on display so people could see them. And then when the Washington Monument had its earthquake damage, I offered to put up the money to fix it because I was told it would take a long time to get the money out of Congress. And so ultimately, I decided, well, I could also fix some other buildings that needed repair, the Lincoln Memorial, Jefferson Memorial, uh, Monticello, and others you mentioned. And so it kind of came about by happenstance. I didn't sit down and go to McKinsey and say, what can I do to give back to my country? It just happened like many good things in life by happenstance. And I called it patriotic philanthropy. But the truth is all philanthropy is probably patriotic. But I'm trying to, what I mean by patriotic philanthropy is reminding people of the history and heritage of our country, which people don't know so much as, as I would like them to know. Uh, we don't teach history and civics quite the way we did in when I was growing up. And as a result, you don't see people knowing very much about our country's background or history or how the government is, works. Mm. I also wanted to ask you how you gotten how you elected to get into interviewing people. Um, clearly, you are a very curious person, thus you're reading 100 books a year and continuing to educate yourself and, um, you know, uh, having a, a, a true sense of, of, of um, continuing to educate yourself. Surely that's part of what, what got you into it. But again, a lot of people, you know, know a lot of uh, people of consequence, but don't necessarily, you know, get involved as you, as deeply as you have in, in the process. What, what, what spurred well, that? When on? I was uh, growing up, my mother um, would say, don't be such a yenta. In other words, I was always asking our guests that came over our house questions about what they were doing. And my mother said, don't bother them with so many questions. I guess I've always been curious uh, and maybe that helps. But what actually happened is when Carlisle had large events, I would go out and hire, in effect, former presidents of the United States, former secretaries of state, uh, former chairman of the Fed to come in and give a speech. And I found that some of the speeches were boring and people were falling asleep. So I decided maybe I could interview them, make it a little bit more lively using some humorous questions. And so I did, and I made people laugh more and people seemed to pay more attention. 
Then Vernon Jordan asked me to become the head of the Economic Club of Washington. The same thing, get business people in to speak. Uh, they make a speech and then basically uh, um, that's all I was supposed to do. And then I found that uh, the speakers were a little boring. So I decided I'd go to the interview format. Then Bloomberg saw it. They said, go on TV and do it. And now I have a number of other programs I do it at. And I uh, enjoy it because I have to read and prepare. So it keeps my brain sharp. Um, I also like learning. I also, it's a good way to meet people. You know, if I'm a business person, I'm not going to generally meet people in the sports world or the or the cultural world. But if I'm interviewing people, people will say, okay, I, I'm happy to have an interview with you. And so you can meet people from all different walks of life and learn a lot. And uh, I do ask sometimes offbeat questions to try to make people um, laugh a little bit. And I try to make my questions somewhat self-deprecating. I never make fun of anybody else, just make fun of myself. And then I try to ask a lot of questions that are uh, ones that are always of interest to me. Most importantly, probably is, did your parents live to see your success? Because I think one of the great pleasures in life is having a parent see a child be successful. And I, I'm amazed at how many people say, no, my parents died young or I became successful after my parents uh, passed away. But those people whose parents are still alive, you know, you can see the pride uh, welling up in these people because their parents lived to see their success. Yeah, that's a, a, a great, great, uh, great set of insights there, David. Thank you. I uh, wanted to ask um, with uh, if as you look out to the you know next uh, decade or two, uh, what are some of the biggest risks you see for the U.S. economic, uh, U.S. economy, or our um, sort of economic prosperity? What, what are as you analyze things? You're somebody who not only thinks a lot about these things from a financial lens. You were in the Carter administration. You are deeply enmeshed in the political uh, system as well. What, what do you, what do you see? Well, leaving aside the dysfunction of the U.S. government, because we have a system now where uh, whoever gets to be elected speaker, for example, let's assume it's McCarthy or whoever's a speaker, he or she will have three or four or five vote majority, let's say. But normally you would say, well, if you have such a small majority, you maybe have a coalition and maybe people can work together. But the way our House is now working, to some extent, the Senate, uh, you're either all or nothing. You're either all Republican or all Democratic. And, and cooperating is really uh, out the window a bit. I wish that would change, but that is probably, me, to me, the biggest risk to our economy, the dysfunction of the government, which could lead to things like defaulting on the debt or having the government shut down repeatedly and things like that, which we've lived through. Uh, overall, the biggest issues I worry about are the, the debt, the total debt and indebtedness in the United States, now roughly $31 trillion, $31 trillion. Our percentage of GDP that the debt represents is as high as any country in the world, with the possible exception of uh, Italy, which is not really a role model, probably. Um, so I worry about the debt. I do worry about um, uh, the entitlements programs because the entitlement programs are eating up the rest of the budget. And I want my Social Security as well as anybody else. But the truth is, uh, you know, we, we either we, we can't afford everything we're doing now. We're either going to have to increase taxes or cut spending because right now we're on a potential train wreck, given how great the entitlements uh, budget is growing and also the defense budget. And as interest rates go up, it's going to cost more to service the U.S. debt. So I worry about uh, how we're going to deal with those those challenges. Also, of course, I worry about um, the the inflation rate. Inflation probably will be under control in a year or so, but it could come back again. And that's always a problem that really hurts the poorest people the most because they're most adversely affected by inflation. Yeah. What, what, what do you think of uh, the prospects for 2023 here, still relatively new, early in the year? Um, what, what's your outlook? Well, if you came in from Mars and you saw what's going on in the House of Representatives, where they have just, as we talk now, 12 votes to figure out who that should be the Speaker of the House, and that we still haven't resolved it, I, I do worry about that a bit. Um, but I'd say 2023 will be a year almost certainly where the Fed will begin reducing interest rates probably by the end of the year, I, I think. 
I think we will, if we have a recession, it'll be relatively modest, I believe. I think uh, job growth is actually pretty good in the United States. It's not a given we'll have a recession, but it could happen, but it won't be very deep. I think inflation will get down to probably three or 4% on an annualized basis. GDP for the year should probably be somewhere between, you know, two and 3% for the overall year, at least I hope. So I, I think the economy is in reasonable shape. Uh, obviously, some of the errors come out of the tech bubbles. And I suspect some of these companies will come back uh, and be relatively strong. But clearly, some of the technology companies had valuations that were not sustainable. Yeah. Are there certain sectors you're particularly bullish on or areas that you're, you're, you're focused on as you think about investing? Well, financial services is, I think, going to continue to be a great uh, growth area because as people get wealthier, they want better ways to manage their money and so forth. I think healthcare, as our economy, um, well, as, as we get older, uh, more and more percentage of our GDP is going to be in healthcare. When I worked in the White House, it was 7 to 8% of the GDP of the United States was in healthcare. Now it's 21 or 22%. And as the population ages, we'll see more and more money spent there. So I think that's an attractive area. But let me mention a few areas that are going to be relatively novel. you got to have, hold on for a while. But I think five years from now, you'll see a lot of money being made in, in quantum computing. I think as the quantum computing area takes off probably five years from now, I think that's a great growth area. Uh, things related to CRISPR and the CRISPR technology will probably be in the biotech area, very important. Computational biology, another area that I think will take off as well. Um, I also think that um, uh, an area of um, that you'll probably see a lot of growth area is, is in artificial intelligence and so-called data science. These are areas where, you know, there's already things going on there, but I think you're going to see a real revolution and dramatic increase in the spending in those areas. And then, of course, as people get wealthier, they're going to spend more time probably on leisure-related activities and, and things that are not necessarily uh, the kind of things I just talked about. So I think uh, resorts and travel and the things like that will begin to see a real pickup as well. Yeah, very interesting. D David, As you uh, also as you look to the future, what are some things that have you optimistic? We're talking about a number of things, at least just prior to that last answer, that are uh, topics of worry or uh, you know reasons for angst potentially. What has you optimistic as you look to uh, look to the future? Well, I think the United States uh, is not going away as the greatest country in the world. I think uh, countries don't last forever as the biggest economy in the world. The United States has a fair amount of resilience. And I think our country and our economy is in reasonably good shape. I wish the government would work better. On, I wish our debt were under control. But leaving those issues aside, I think the U.S. is in reasonably good shape. So it makes me reasonably optimistic. Um, I think that uh, my, my three children are in private equity. And as I've said, that's the highest calling of mankind. So that makes me feel pretty good as well. Um, I'm 73 years old and reasonably good health. So that makes me optimistic as well. Uh, but generally, I, I'm you know reasonably optimistic about the future of this country. And uh, you know, I hope we can solve some of the, the, the dysfunction in the government, though. That, that is the biggest worry that I have in terms of where the country's going. The government just doesn't seem to have bipartisanship in its uh, genes anymore. I, maybe I would love to just briefly talk about that with you as well. You mentioned Jim Baker, the phenomenal book, uh, which I also uh, would highly recommend, uh, the biography, his biography. Um, and, and I want—I I wonder, you know, as somebody who was a, a Democrat in Democratic uh, administrations, uh, a, a sing, single one, uh, the Carter administration, but who also had uh, really strong collaborations with famous Republicans like uh, Jim Baker or George H.W. Bush, um, uh, to, to name a couple of examples among many. Um, you know, wh what's your thought process about sort of bipartisanship and the pathway towards getting back to that in some some degree? It's going to be difficult as long as money is such an important part of politics. Right now, you raise your money from the far left and the far right. 
you rarely can raise money by saying, look, I'm going to be a centrist. I'm going to be right down the middle. I'm going to try to get something done in a bipartisanship way. That doesn't raise money. You raise money by appealing to the far left and the far right. And unfortunately, um, that's that's the reality of the game we're in now. If you could change any one thing about our way our government works, I would eliminate you know, the ability of money to be so important in campaigns. But that, that's unrealistic in the way our system works. So I, I do worry about that as a, as a real problem in, in terms of uh, bipartisanship. I don't see it happening anytime soon unless there's a national tragedy of some type. But even when you have a national tragedy of COVID, we saw uh, a lot of um, partisanship and not a lot of bipartisanship compared to what I would have expected it would have been. Yeah. Well, David Rubenstein, I'm, I'm, I'm honored you to take a little bit more time out of your schedule, your busy schedule uh, with me and with our audience. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you and to learn from you. Congratulations on your terrific book. And we'll look forward to the next, next chance to catch up. My pleasure. Thanks very much.